Well, friends, good morning and a warm welcome once again to McLean Presbyterian, those of you who are here in our sanctuary, those in our fellowship hall, and those joining us online. How good was that? Stronger than the rushing wind. Did we plan that, Jeff? Did we, you know, did we, uh, of course. Okay, good. We always check the weather forecast before we plan our sermons. You'll be glad to, glad to know. Uh, we're continuing in our series this morning on the life of David, and so we turn now to the book of First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 24. If you want to pull one of the pew Bibles out, you'll find us on page 246. We've been looking at the life of David together, and we come this morning to a text that is all about vengeance. Vengeance. Uh, Happy little theme, isn't it? Well, let's read this together and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. I'll read the whole chapter, and let's enjoy it as we go. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So God persuaded his men, so David, sorry, persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. 
For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we believe that your love is deeper and higher and wider and longer than we have yet to understand. And so, even in a text like this, a text that deals with vengeance, would you come and teach us more of that great love that we might receive it in our hearts and find that it becomes the center around which we organize our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, you usually start a sermon with something that you hope will arrest people's attention, yeah? But then you meet a king peeing in a cave and realize you can't really come up with anything better than that. Here we have King Saul. King Saul, remember, is the evil king. When you hear Saul, you say, boo, and he is pursuing David, who is the Lord's anointed. What does that mean? It means that he is the one that God has put his favor on to become the king of Israel. So we have Saul, the evil guy, pursuing David, the Lord's guy. Now, Saul has one goal, and it's very simple. He wants to kill David dead. No diplomacy, no talks, no compromises. Saul only wants his head Well, we read in verse 1 that Saul's fairly impressive network of underground informants tell him once again where David is, that David is now at En Gedi, we read. So, Saul deploys an enormous team of special forces, some 3,000 men that are selected from amongst all the men of Israel, and together they head off to go and take David's head off, and everything is going well until suddenly Saul needs to make a pit stop. Too much soda before the road. He finds a cave and dives in to do his business, and then verse 3 springs the surprise. You see it there? (laughs) Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, of all the caves and all the towns and all the world. (laughs) He walks into my one, and David's men, it's hilarious, they're giddy. We have literally caught Saul with his pants down, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. (laughs) Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Today is the day. Now is the moment. Clearly, God has given us this opportunity that we might finally take care of Saul. So, David, get over there and take care of business while he's, you know, still taking care of, of business. See, Saul, Saul is an evil man. And in the chapters between uh, this text and the one we preached on last week, we've seen his, his, his wickedness increase. We have seen his evil and his depravity get only worse. And David's men know this. They know that Saul has brought great harm to their nation. 
that he has brought great harm to their leader, that he's even brought great harm to them, and now's the chance to avenge all the wrong he's done. That's what this text is about. The desire for vengeance that we experience when we feel that we've been wronged. The desire we feel to get back at someone when we feel that we've been wrong. Now, maybe this term vengeance sounds kind of dramatic. It's not a term that we use very often, but vengeance can be, can be a small, mundane, kind of petty thing. You know, your, your sibling hits you, so you hit them back. Um, a colleague gossips about you, so you freeze them out of the next project. Uh, a spouse or a loved one says something really unkind to you, so you use your knowledge of their insecurities to hit them where it really hurts. Sometimes it's petty. Uh, I heard of a, a Florida woman this week, I don't know if you heard the story on, on NPR, uh, who felt that she'd been overcharged by her water company. And so after her appeal was unsuccessful, she showed up at their offices to pay her $493 bill, all in pennies, right? Um, Not big, not clever. Sometimes vengeance is petty. But can we just also note from this text that this isn't petty? Yeah, sometimes our vengeance is petty, but sometimes vengeance is righteous. Sometimes vengeance is righteous. This isn't going to be a sermon where we say bad things happen, forgive people, move on. That's there's got to be more substance than that. Because sometimes vengeance is, is righteous, like here with, with David and Saul, or like a friend I have who told me this week that his daughter was raped when she was in college, and they never caught the perpetrator. Justice hasn't been done. Sometimes our desire for vengeance is petty, but sometimes it's righteous. In either case, we feel it, we experience it when we feel that we've been wronged. And we all probably have examples in our own lives, ways in which we're a bit petty, but things evil we've experienced that that seems more, more righteous. And either way, this text helps us to navigate these experiences as we seek to follow the Lord. Two points from the text this morning. Point one, we see from the example of David and the life of David that when it comes to vengeance, we must remember, point one, that providence is not permission. Providence is what? Not permission. What does that mean? It simply means just because you can get back at someone doesn't mean you should. Just because you can do an act of retribution doesn't mean you should. Let's go back into the cave. At the encouragement of his men, we read that David sneaks over to Saul, all quiet like a ninja, and then weapon in hand, he takes the corner of Saul's robe and he cuts it. But as soon as he does so, his heart cuts him. He realizes that he's doing something wrong. At the moment of opportunity, David refuses to kill him. David refuses to act. He refuses to take matters into his own hands. Now, he goes back to his men, and they're incredulous. They just can't believe it. This is a unique opportunity. Clearly, this is a work of God. Clearly, all this has happened so that you might kill him today. How can you let Saul get away like that? Well, David explains himself in verse 6. You see it there? He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing 
to my Lord. Now, two different types of Lord you see there. The, the first Lord is capitalized. That means it's referring to, the, to, to Yahweh, the Old Testament name of God. So we could translate that as, the, God forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. It's lowercase, it's more like master. God forbid that I should do this thing to Saul, my master. Why? Because he is God's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is God's anointed. See, Saul is an evil man. But David knows that God's also anointed him to be king. And so he won't kill the Lord's anointed, even if everyone thinks he has it coming. David knows that opportunity is not the same as permission. Providence is not permission. He knows that just because he can kill Saul doesn't mean that he should, that a righteous end doesn't justify unrighteous means, that God is not going to accomplish his purposes here on earth by calling us to sin, that the desire for justice is good, but you can't get there through an unjust route. Back in the 90s, a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary, this is the seminary all of your pastors went to, um, shot and murdered an abortion doctor outside of his clinic in, in Pensacola, Florida. Now, you see, his desire for justice for the unborn was good. But he went about it in a sinful and evil route. Providence is not permission. Ends don't justify means. Now, for us, it might be much more mundane. We feel ignored. We feel picked on. We feel cheated. Perhaps we feel jealous. And now we respond with insults. We respond with gossip. We respond with the silent treatment, perhaps. When we're wronged, and in the midst of that sting, you know the sting of being wronged? We want to be slow and not to have a knee-jerk response. We want to remember that just because we can inflict equal harm doesn't mean that we should. We must remember that providence is not a permission. We don't want to operate by the world's rules. Point one, providence is not permission. Okay, we say, fine, on board. In your anger, do not sin. But what do we do? Okay, providence isn't permission. I shouldn't take matters into my own hands. But, but what should we do? Well, let's look at David and see our second point for the morning. Yes, providence is not permission. But secondly, patience is not passive. Patience isn't passive. David refuses to sin. David refuses to sort of just entirely take matters into his own hands. But that doesn't mean that he does nothing. Uh, yeah, we want to stay away from sin, but that doesn't mean that we just sit around and, and wait to see how things work out. No, patience is not passive. Let's apply this to our lives, put this into our own context by looking at three examples we see from David. Okay, he won't sin, but patience isn't passive. First of all, we see that he calls on God to act. When we've been wronged, it's entirely right for us to call upon God to act. Back to the cave. Uh, Saul is leaving when he hears a voice. And we can almost imagine the goosebumps that arise on his neck because it's a voice that he knows. It's a voice that he's heard sing to him. It's a voice that he has uh, broken bread with. And now he turns and sees David bowing in respect. And before Saul even has the chance to move, David begins to speak. 
And he does two things in verses 9 through 15. First of all, we see that he emphasizes his innocence. He says, he says to Saul, hey, why do you believe the people that are saying that I'm out to get you? And we could add P.S. It's not clear that anybody's saying that other than King Saul himself, right? Why do you believe that I'm out to get you? That, like clearly fake news, right? Just look at the day that we've had. I could have killed you in that cave. I could have slit your throat. Here I have the corner of your robe to prove it all, but I didn't and I wouldn't and I won't. I'm innocent before you. But David doesn't stop there. Look at what else he does in verses 12 and following. He doesn't stop there. He does something else. He calls on God to act. He won't take matters into his own hands, but he will place them in God's hands. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. It's calling on God to act. Do you remember Romans 12, 19? Where we read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Well, David obeys these words before they were even written. He knows that there's nothing wet or weak or namby-a-pamby about it. David won't avenge himself, but he will ask for vengeance to come from God. And frankly, no one asks for vengeance upon their enemies like David does. Remember some of his songs? Uh, Psalm 54, verse 5. In your faithfulness, O God, put an end to my enemies. End them. Psalm, oh man, 58.6, how's this for a picture? Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Ooh, it's just rough. Um, my favorite one, I don't know if I'm allowed a favorite one, that sounds weird, but my favorite one is Psalm 139. This is outrageous. Um, Psalm 139, it's famous, right? It's a famous psalm because it's the whole, oh Lord, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Isn't it delightful language? Lovely, pretty, beautiful. Uh, Verse 17, Lord, how precious to me are your thoughts. Isn't that nice? Um, How vast is the sum of them? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. It's like, (laughs) oh, what? You know, like, we're sipping margaritas by the pool, and now we're suddenly like slaying our enemies. What, 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 what's going on here? What's happening here? Does this all sound kind of a little uh, unchristian? To ask for God to bring vengeance upon your, your enemies? Friends, there is evil in the world, and it should outrage us. There is evil in the world, and it ought to outrage us. Can we not fall into some cozy, middle-class, Western sentimentality where we forget the evil, hellish realities that exist in our world today? Globally, we have 60 million refugees. We have 40 million slaves. We have 20 million who are trafficked for sex. 
nationally, we have Me Too, we have uh, schools being shot by gunmen, we have uh, children that are aborted and women that are abused and daughters that are raped. And perhaps you have examples from your own life too. Evil that you have experienced in your own life. And if you have, you should be outraged. And it's okay to call on God to act. An example of this from history of Scotland, 1661. King Charles II, now when you hear King Charles II, it's kind of like Saul. You say, boo, okay? Evil king. Um, Sentenced James Guthrie, a faithful minister. James Guthrie, yay. Charles, boo, James, yay. Um, to, To death. He was to be hanged. And then his head was to be removed and publicly displayed. Well, after the deed was done, some faithful woman from James Guthrie's church took his body and prepared it for a, for a proper burial. And as they did so, they dipped their handkerchiefs in the blood of this martyr. Now, an observer said, uh, criticized them, called them out on this because he thought that they were doing this for some sort of superstitious reasons, like they were going to perform later some kind of witchcraft type ritual. And one lady spoke up in defense. She said, we intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that is spilt. Now, that's asking God to act. That's calling upon God to bring justice. We believe in the God who sees every single evil that ever was, that ever is, or that ever will come. And we believe in the God who's going to deal with it all, every single one. And so when we confront evil in our world, it's not just okay, it's even right to ask that his will might be done on earth, even as it's done in heaven. Patience isn't passive. (laughs) Call upon God to act. Shake your handkerchief towards the heavens. Point two, under this theme of patience not being passive. Yes, we see that David has uh, calling upon God to act, but, uh, but we also see that David himself still has the courage to do what's right. So when we sense this desire for vengeance, we call upon God to act, but then we still need to have the courage to do what's right. See, David spares Saul. He doesn't take his life, but that doesn't mean he's entirely passive. He still has the courage to stand up, to stand up to two groups in this text. First of all, we see him standing up to his friends, standing up to his, to his own men. Uh, they are very bloodthirsty. They were sure that this was the time to take Saul out. And when David refuses, it seems that some of them were only too happy to oblige themselves. Hence, we get verse 7. You see it there? David persuaded his men with these words. Uh, those words in verse 6 about how you shouldn't lay your hand upon the Lord's anointed. Well, David now takes this argument to them and he persuades them and we read, did not permit them to attack Saul. The Hebrew word for persuaded here literally means to tear apart. David tore apart his men with his words. He read them the riot act to make sure that they also wouldn't sin. He stood up to his own men. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly right now, see how David also has the courage to stand up to King Saul. He isn't going to kill him, but he is going to confront him. Look with me at verse 11. David says, I have not sinned against you, 
He's declared his innocence. I've not sinned against you, even though you hunt my life to take it. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. Talk about speaking truth to power. Saul is there armed with 3,000 men, and David calls him out. David calls him to account. Now, neither of these things are easy. To stand up to your friends, to your loved ones, it takes a certain kind of courage. And then to stand up to your enemies and, and powerful ones takes greater courage still. And in the context of all of this, David has all that he needs to do just that, to stand up with courage and do what's right. Rachel Den Hollander, I don't know if you saw news stories about her over the last month or so, she was 15 years old when Larry Nassar, the USA gymnastics team doctor, started to abuse her. She was the first one to come forward and make uh, public allegations against this powerful man. And then she was the last of 150 survivors to give her witness statement in court. Interestingly, she uh, forgave Larry Nasser, but she also told the courtroom that speaking out had cost her a lot. Her decision to stand up when no one else had, had stood up was, was costly. It required courage because doing so alienated her from her gymnastics community, thereby alienating her from many of her closest friends. She even tells in, in one sad interview how it actually alienated her from her own congregation, from the own church that she was a part of at the time. She commented, Obedience costs. It means that you will have to speak out against your own community. It will cost you to stand up for the oppressed, and it should. Asked in a Christianity Today article or interview, uh, what motivated her to stand up? She said, God is the God of justice. These things are evil, and it is biblical, right, and godly to pursue justice. I had to make a decision to do what was right, no matter the cost. So you see what's forming in our text here, that the gospel does something very robust, <laughs> very substantive within our hearts. Yes, we trust our lives to God, but that doesn't mean that we now lack nerve. We should still have the courage to stand up and do what's right. Maybe that's as simple as standing up for your friend who's being bullied on the playground, or standing up to your relative who, you know, the one who makes those racist jokes, or standing up to the powerful when they need to be called to account or standing up for the vulnerable when they don't have a voice. We are to be a people who trust our lives to God, who call upon him to act, who don't sin, but who still have the courage to come and do what's right. Patience isn't passive. Third, final example. We've seen that we can call upon God to act. We have the courage to do what's right. And also patience isn't passive because we also need the humility to repent. The humility to repent. David has that in this text, and it's really quite striking. Look at verse 5 with me for a moment. We read, afterwards, that's after he's cut off the corner of Saul's robe, David's heart, his conscience, struck him. Why? Because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
Now, cutting the robe was a symbolic act. Saul is wearing the robes of the king. And so when David cuts the robe, it's not just like a minor annoyance. It's a symbolic statement of uh, the fact that Saul is not worthy in his view to wear these robes. Saul is not worthy of being the king. And in fact, David, who has been anointed to, to become the king of Israel, is saying, not only does it not belong to you, but now I have this piece. It belongs to me. That's how David sees it. Now, we might say, hey, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Like if there's a hundred evil things in this text, Saul does 99 and a half of them, right? A symbolic act just doesn't seem that offensive, especially when we could say, you know, David's actually right. <laughs> he's right in all, in all that he's saying, but David doesn't see it that way. David doesn't see it that way. David thinks that if he shouldn't kill the Lord's anointed, then he shouldn't disrespect him either even if he has it coming, even if he has it coming. It may not be the biggest thing. It might not seem that way to us, but David still has the humility to repent. Don't, don't you hate it when celebrities apologize, right? You know, they get caught up in some scandal or another, and they call their PR person, and then they issue the most self-serving, blame-shifting, formulaic mea culpa imaginable. Right? Um, I compiled one for you. Here it is. Um, it's a kind of one-size-fits-all, non-apology apology. So you can use this the next time you're in trouble. Okay, here, here it goes. You ready? Uh, this is what celebrities say. Um, some of what is being said about me is untrue or mischaracterized. But these events have caused me to look at myself. I've grown a lot. I was A, under extreme pressure, B, drunk, or C, part of the culture that existed in those days. I exercised poor judgment. I'm truly sorry if anyone took offense. Translation, most of this isn't true. It isn't really my fault, and y'all shouldn't be so sensitive. Yeah. See, we live in a culture that won't accept responsibility even, even when we're wrong. And yet, don't we know that that exists in our own hearts as well? If, if I'm 51% right, I'm blind to the 49. And yet, here we have David coming to express sorrow over his, what we might say was tiny sin. Christians, we don't want to be celebrities. <laughs> We want to be Christians. We want to own our own part. We want to seek forgiveness. We want to seek change as we move forward. We want to have the humility to repent. And so when you're wronged, when we're wronged, we have a good look at ourselves. We have a good look at ourselves to see if there's sin. Now, friends, you know there are some situations where you will be guiltless. But there'll be lots of situations where we're not. And then we want you know, like Jesus says, take the speck out of our own eye before we deal with the log in our brothers. Have the humility to repent. So, friends, providence, not permission. Patience, not passive. Whether it's petty or righteous desires for vengeance, we call upon God to act. We have the courage to do what's right. We have the humility to repent. But let's not close without remembering that 
All of this is only possible because Jesus did it first. All of our doing is only possible because it's already done. That we can only do for others what Jesus has first already done for us. Now, didn't Jesus know that providence wasn't permission? Do you remember Matthew chapter 4? Satan shows up and he tempts Jesus. He tempts Jesus and he says to him, Hey, Jesus, see all these nations? Shows them the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says to Jesus, All of these, I'm going to give all of these to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what Satan offers to Jesus is something that actually will be his. Psalm 2 verse 8 says that the, her- the nations will be his heritage, that the nations will belong to him. The end to which he's pointing is good, but the means that he's offering to get there are evil, and Jesus isn't sucked in. He knows that providence isn't permission. Just because he can have the nations now doesn't mean that it's God's plan. In fact, God has a different plan. The nations will be his, not because he worships Satan, but because he dies on the cross. God has the same end, but a different route. Jesus knows that providence isn't permission. But Jesus also knows that patience isn't passive. The cross is the ultimate act of God, where courage and humility meet. We believe that there, Jesus conquers evil, that evil doesn't get to win, that every single drop of evil in our world is fully dealt with in hell or on the cross by him. So we put our trust in this God even when we are wronged. He's forgiven our evil hearts, And so we can trust our lives to him. Look at verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Saul says to David, how unusual it is that you had the opportunity to kill your enemy, and yet you let him go away safe. And does David not here point us to his greater son, to Jesus, who takes his enemies and makes us safe, who takes those who have sinned against him, who takes those who he could justly kill, and yet forgives them full and free and welcomes them to his table. We are a people who have received lavish grace, and so we trust our lives to him. Friends, uh, you'll probably never meet a king peeing in a cave, right? But these truths through the gospel will be needed in all our lives if we're to be the people we want to be as we seek to follow Jesus, our king. Let's pray together. Father, the gospel does a powerful work because it comes to those who were your enemies and makes us friends. Uh, We are safe, not just in that we are uh, away from danger, but in that we have been welcomed home as family members, as family members around your table. 
And so, Lord, I pray that this gospel would do something powerful in our hearts, that we, we would see how you treat your enemies and that we would treat ours in that light. And that we wouldn't mistake providence for permission. But that we also wouldn't mistake patience for passivity, that, Lord, we would call out against the evil in our world, that we would have the courage to do what's right, and that we'd have the humility to repent. These things we pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.